I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker this morning. <clears throat> His name is Mark Hall. I asked him, what could I share about you? And he said, keep it short. <laughs> but I actually could go a long time because I have known Mark for a long, long time. I believe it was 1991 that I was at uh, staff of a church that he attended, and we have had a relationship since then. He reminded me that he was on the interview team that uh, interviewed me, which I didn't remember. So he's a really good guy because they, they, they did hire me. Either that or he's not so smart. I don't know. <laughs> but what I will say about Mark, and uh, we get together for coffee every now and again, and he has served in FCA when I first came to Eau Claire. He was in charge of Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Eau Claire, but now serves internationally, and you'll hear a little bit about that. But I enjoy our coffees together. He is one of those guys that when we meet, we talk a little bit of ministry, but talk mostly about life. And he doesn't know this, but I'm going to say this sincerely. He's probably in my top three of most respected people when it comes to those that I have uh, mixed with, and that's a, a lot of people through the years. So great respect for Mark. Excited to hear from him this morning, and I welcome you uh, to the pulpit. Mentioned that I do a lot of work internationally now, and when Pastor asked me to speak, I said, you know, being an international speaker now, I usually get four figures when I speak. And he said, oh, we can do that. We can do that, no problem. What he did was put two of those figures on the right side of the decimal. So it's pretty shrewd. So I'll get the four. <laughs> In 1988, I moved my family here to Eau Claire to come on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They asked me to give them three years. I said, I can give you two. That's all I know of because we thought we were going to go back overseas. Well, God does end up giving you the desires of your heart or changes those desires. But he had a lot of work to do in me before that was going to happen. And yet, while we lived here, well over a thousand international students, I stopped counting at that point, have at least had a meal in our home. We have had the blessing of having the international students come and to help to form and change us. And now, I just got back from my fifth trip to Cairo on Wednesday, and on next Wednesday, I get to go and do a workshop at my 61st country in the last eight years. God does give you the desires of your heart. But it is, it's the first country, usually, that has the biggest impact, and that was true for me. It was 1985. I had just finished graduate school. It was time to take a risk. Knowing that going overseas can be a game changer, I decided to sign up with World Relief to work with Laotian, Cambodian, and Vietnamese refugees at a camp in the Philippines. So I got on that plane all by myself. I came back married with a kid. That's a game changer. Our first daughter, a few of you may know, her name's Aleli. She was born in the Philippines. And so I left my wife at, in Manila, and I would drive back and forth on weekends from the refugee camp, just praying that she would give birth on a weekend. Well, it was 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And my wife let me know in no uncertain terms it was time to go in. Well, 
Eric knows me. I'm normally a pretty calm guy, pretty, pretty staid, but I got flustered. I mean, this is our first kid, but I, I did get on the, on the phone, and I called the, called the hospital, and I said, my wife, she's going to have a baby. You're coming in. And, the, uh, and the, the nurse, sensing my anxiety, calmly said, sir, is this her first child? I go, no, this is her husband, I said. We need to get in. Well, anyway, I, I ended up sitting out there, sitting in the waiting room. It's now, it's now about 3 a.m. with another Filipino man, and both of our wives were behind those doors somewhere giving birth. Well, we had this kind of nervous conversation, and then we basically dozed off. And it was some time later, I don't remember, but we were both startled as awake when the nurse came through those doors with three kids in her arms. Yeah. And walked up to the other guy. Who I go, whoa! Uh, I don't know if I can... Oh, I can still see her in, in him. He, she goes, well, sir, what do you think? And he stands there and he's scratching his head. He goes, oh, this is going to be so hard. Uh, I'll take the one on the left, he said. <laughs> well, well, anyway, the nurse went back through those doors, and you should have seen his face when he realized they're all mine, and he went through those doors, and the nurse says, Sir, you can't come in here. You're not sterile. He said, No kidding. I have three kids. <laughs> well, that was 36 years ago. And over those 36 years of times, time, I have made way more than my share of mistakes as a husband and as a father. But the biggest mistake I have made is I have blinked. And 35 years have gone just like that. And I'm trying not to make that mistake again. Except that I've realized that that's impossible. Because God didn't design us for time. He designed us for the fullness of time. And so you can either fill your time or you can fulfill it. You can have your plans and your goals and your desires and you can mark progress in time. Or you can have a calling and meaning and purpose and you can fill that time. One of those things measures us, but the other moves us. Time is an interesting word. The Greeks had two words for time. The first word we're mostly familiar with is chronos, chronos time. That's chronological time. That's time that, that moves in minutes, in months, in millennia, and we just move with it. It just heads in a direction and we follow along. It doesn't change or correct itself. It just marches along and we march with it. And the other word for time, it's kairos, kairos time. Kairos time isn't measured in minutes, but moments. Kairos time gets us, as we march on this linear time, it gets us to stop. And then we have that opportunity to do two things. We can rethink and we can reform. The first scripture verse for us today is from Mark. It says this, after John was thrown into prison, Jesus went around Galilee 
announcing the gospel of God. He said this, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is now here. Repent and believe this good news. That word was kairos, the moment. Something is happening that Jesus said, it is now time to stop and repent. But in this, many times in our Christian circles, we hear the word repent, and we think of a sorrow and a turning from our sin. And that's true. But it's not what Jesus was talking about here. This is good news. And what you need to do is rethink everything. Repent. To ponder again. To rethink. When we rethink, we do three things. First, we have to observe what's going on. This, there's this announcement. It doesn't tell us what to do. The gospel, the good news, is not a plan. It's not a laws. It's not, it's not a Roman road. It is an announcement. It's news. News doesn't tell us what to do. We have to figure it out. We have to, based upon the news, there's a new king. And this king's going to rule. You better rethink everything in light of this announcement. It's in a negative sense is what happened to us just over a year ago together because Kiev, Ukraine was a hub of ministry for us. I've been there five times. When the news that a war started, guess what we had to do? We had to rethink everything. That's in the negative. Jesus' news was good news. He, he didn't say, repent and believe this good news. Repent, rethink everything. There's this news of the availability of life in the kingdom of God. Wow, but you've got to rethink everything to do that. You observe, you reflect, you discuss. And then to believe is to create a plan of action, act upon it in accountability. First, we rethink we repent. And then based upon that, we believe. We reform. We head in a different direction. We behave in a different way based upon this news. That's Mark. Now let's move to the next verse where his disciples saw Jesus doing powerful things and praying. And you know what they asked him? Teacher, would you what? Teach us to pray. It's interesting that when someone asks us, well, I don't know how to pray. Can you, how, how should I pray? You know what we normally say? Just talk to God. And that's legitimate. Just talk to God. But what happens with that is if we're a worried person, we end up just praying worried prayers. If we're an angry person, we pray angry prayers. You know, if we're a happy person, we just pray happy prayers. But we're stuck in our own head. Jesus gives his disciples and us a form to get us out of our head and to help us enter into the front door instead of the side or the back door. The front door is focusing first on who God is, not our petitions, our wants, our desires. That's a side door. That might even be the back door. The front door is to acknowledge who God is and what we're called. So we start to pray, Our Father, he is our father. He is our parent. In the heavens, 
Your name is holy. Thy kingdom come. Jesus announced it's come. We're now praying that it would still come. So it's already here, but we are praying in its fullness. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. His kingdom is where his will is done. On earth, just like it's done in the heavens. Well, for me, and what I do for the last 30-some years in the arena of sport, well, sport is one thing we do on earth. If I am praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on every playground, mat, ball field, gym, just like it's done in heaven, then just like Jesus, after he prayed that, for the next three years, what did he do? Basically, the only thing he did was to continue to announce and enact the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom is like. And he tells these stories. This is what the kingdom looks like. And he heals. And he restores. He announces it. Then he enacts it. Well, I'm praying. We're called to be the answer to the very prayers that Jesus helped to form us. So I'm asking the question, what would it look like if I rethought everything as it applies to sport? And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 or 12 years. And frankly, when you start to rethink and you observe first, then you reflect on it and you discuss it with others, there's a lot of things we need to rethink. There's a lot of things that are formed by the kingdoms of this world that we enter into. And we're not called to just be chaplains to the status quo. In fact, I don't think the sports world needs another chaplain. It needs another prophet. It needs people that will speak to it in a way that says, from a Christian perspective, what should this look like? I've been rethinking that for about, about 14 years now. And I had a Kairos moment that got me to stop. You see, what I was doing was what I was trained to do, and what our founder, based on his kind of formative question, was back in 1940s, if athletes could share about these products, if they could endorse a product, couldn't they share and endorse a lifestyle? And that was a formative question, and it's not a bad one, but it's an incomplete one, because what that does is it looks at the, the platform of sport, and then wants to announce and share Jesus from that platform. That's not a bad thing, but now it's utilitarian. What it doesn't do is it doesn't look at the rickety platform that we're standing on that really can't support it. We need to look at not just how do you use sport to share a message, but what would it look like for Jesus to be Lord and ruler over it if he were the athletic director? And you were a coach. And he calls you into your office and says, we're going to just have a meeting. And he says stuff like this. He said, you know the things you're doing here? Keep doing that. That's really good. The stuff here, well, some of that may be good, but you need to rethink the motives behind that. So you need to do a little heart check here. This stuff over here, that just needs to be abolished. There's no place for the anger, the shame, the violence. There's no room for that in the kingdom of God. And there's no room for it if Jesus is going to rule and reign. So we can choose who we serve in the arena. I'll tell you, I would hate to be 
I, I have great empathy, compassion for parents today trying to navigate this. It is not getting any easier. And many of you are probably grandparents in this. And you recognize how this environment has changed from when you participated to when your children participated to when your grandchildren are. And it needs to be rethought, the whole thing. When adults learn how to profit off of children's play, we've got problems. And we've learned that very well. Uh, when adults, the problem is adults are designing this for children, and then we're complaining about the children in the arena. Um, we are now inserting adult imaginations onto our children's play. And we're robbing them. We're, we're stealing their own imaginations in the process. And it needs to stop. And we need to rethink that and reform it. We need to determine how much of the limited issues of time and money we're going to put toward this. Because uh, it is getting, until we know how to say no, we're going to get run over by this. And we need to rethink all of it. Uh, in the arena I'm looking at rethinking, and there's, there's four or five things that, from a Christian perspective, if Jesus is going to rule and reign in this, if his kingdom is to come, if I'm going to pray that, I need to enact it, or I need to stop praying it. Your kingdom come, your will be done in this gym, on these mats, uh, at this practice, like it is in heaven. Well, how is it done in heaven? Where do we find that out? Because we don't get to make this up. It is revealed to us. And the best place it is revealed is in Jesus' stump speech. The speech he gave many times. He called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Hill. He gave that way more times, I'm sure, than it was ever recorded. And in that, he tells us what the kingdom is like. He tells us how we are to act. And I am baffled at some of the, tr the interpretations that we put on this announcement. That many times I've heard people say, well, he shared that about loving your enemy, doing good to those, praying for those, uh, uh, blessing those who curse you, going the second mile, uh, treating others like you want to be treated, love your enemy. He says it twice in that message. He shares that to show us how far short we come so that we come to him and repent. Well, that's nonsense if you take the whole thing and look at what he says at the end of it. What does he say at the very end of this stump speech? Those who hear these words of mine and put them into action are like a person who builds their house on a solid foundation. Because when the storms come, the house stands. But those who hear these and don't do them, what are they like? People who build on sand. So when the storms come, it knocks it down. If he ends it like that, I think he's sharing it so that we do it, so that we build our house on the rock. This is, where, this is how people behave in the kingdom of God. Of course, the Holy Spirit's power to access is necessary for the fulfilling of it. But the announcement is that the kingdom is now open to even those who are poor in spirit. He is not calling us to be poor in spirit. In fact, we're called to be rich in spirit. 
if, if at family gatherings, you're the one they ask to pray, you can be pretty sure you're not the one who's poor in spirit. It's the one who we never would ask to pray, who knows they're poor in spirit. And Jesus' announcement is, hey, the kingdom's open to you too. It's open to you too. Come on in. And then he, then he tells us what it's like. I think we need to rethink the place of prayer in sport. How many times we hear prayers like, you know, Lord, you know, help. we want to win. I know you're on our side. Help us to win. Well, what we're praying is that God would fix the outcome of the competition and he would fix it in my way. First of all, that would rob us from the joy. I know that because if we knew our prayers worked that way and God fixed it for us, we'd stop playing because it is the unknown that is so intriguing. Here's how I know it for you is if you can TiVo a game and you're working because you're a Badger fan or whatever it is, how many times have you said, hey, don't tell me the outcome. Don't tell me the outcome. I'm going to watch it later. Why? Because if I know the outcome, it robs the excitement of the journey. And now I'm just watching it for technical skill. We've, we don't want it fixed. We want to have this unknown. And then also, in those prayers, what you're saying is God is a fan of my team. He's on my side. And that's our imagination. I think we need to reimagine God is on the other team. And then to imagine on either side, he'd be pleased with the process. We need to rethink prayer. Um, the other thing we need to rethink ties into the last verse, set of verses. This has all now come to a head. The very beginning of that announcement led to the inevitability of Jesus in front of Pilate. It was inevitable from the first time he said, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because this place already had a king. His name was Caesar. And Jesus was saying, Caesar isn't Lord, isn't king, I am. That is an inevitable collision with the powers and principalities that rule at the time. Jesus is now a threat to those in power. And so he stands before Pilate, and Pilate asked him this. Actually, it's the second time he stood before Pilate. Pilate sent him away to Caiaphas and the others, thinking he was done with it. And now he gets him back. Now Pilate's a little unnerved and annoyed. And he says to him, they're saying you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus' answer, yes, I am. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it doesn't come from this world. How do we know that? By how it advances. Because what he said after that, if my kingdom was from this world, what would happen? My people would be fighting. We'd be fighting. In fact, before he got there, when Jesus pulled out the sword, he told him, put the sword away. Look, if I wanted to, I could petition the Father and he'd send me 12 legions of angels to fight this. That's not how the kingdom works. See, of these 61 countries I've been to, out of every country, they all have borders. They all have boundaries. Every one of them. 
and every boundary will tell you a bloody story. Every one of them. Our boundaries included. They all tell bloody stories. Because that's how kingdoms advance in this world. Through power and violence. That's how every kingdom advances. Through power and violence. So Jesus says, I can't advance that way. In fact, that is the third temptation in the wilderness. The temptation... Satan says, hey, see all these kingdoms out there? I'll give them to you. They're yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And we hear those and say, well, that's an easy one. The other two are tricky. That's an easy one. No, no. Because here we're finding out how hard that actually is. Because what that meant, when I ascribe worth to someone to worship, That means I follow in their ways. In their ways, I see the worth, and I follow. And the way of Satan is power and violence. And if Jesus would just use power and violence, he'd have all the kingdoms. He'd get 12 legions of angels. You don't think that was going to win? He'd have them all. But he would have to worship Satan to do it because he'd have to ascribe the ways of Satan to do it, power and violence. The kingdom of heaven never advances by power and violence. Never. It advances by love and forgiveness. The boundaries of the kingdom are drawn by love and forgiveness. This is interesting. Every boundary in this world tells a bloody story. And as you think about it, the boundaries of the kingdom of God tell a bloody story too. But it's one that absorbed, not absorbed the violence, absorbed it, laid its life down, not taking life. So now I've got to look at that. What does that mean for the arena of sport? See, the kingdom of God advances by love, reason, witness, rhetoric, uh, worship, and if necessary, martyrdom, but never through violence. It cannot. So what do I do with violence in the kingdoms of sport in this world. I got to rethink it. It's hard to ask difficult questions about what you've come to know and love. But that's what rethinking does. I led with my conclusions a few times and realized that that's not very smart. Because I've come to those conclusions through a process. And I'm asking people to skip the process and come to my conclusions. And I may be wrong in my conclusions, but I'm not wrong in the process. So now with, we've got 2,500 staff, there's a few of them I can have these conversations with because they're not ready to truly rethink it. They see sport as a platform to share about Jesus. And it is, but that makes it a utilitarian thing. What about the platform itself? It's confusing. At best, when I'll ask the question, here's a question that I have not come to resolve in the positive, so I have to resolve it in the negative. But if you can help me understand how I can put my fist into your nose in Jesus' name, then help me. Because if I can't, then I shouldn't do it. Because I may be a Christian as a noun, but I'm not following Jesus unless I can see Jesus putting his fist into somebody's nose. And I can't. How can I do an inherently violent act in the name of the Prince of Peace? 
Is that in the kingdom of God? And as far as I've come, the answer is no. I, I will still minister in those areas. I, I am around the world. But I an understanding that I'm in a place where I still need to love and serve people and earn the right to speak prophetically at some point in time. I don't want to just use something that's broken to share about something that's whole. But I want to look and say, how can we create this as whole as well? The kingdom never advances through violence, ever, because love cannot be violent. Let me share you one story. Uh, I was in at Boris Grinchenko Kiev University. We did a workshop for a, that university, their students, and the, the, the eight professors, all of them were female, the eight professors were, were intrigued by this because they've never had anybody talk about the role of the spirit with identity and character and, and, and purpose engaged in sport and to understand it. So they brought our, the FCA Ukraine team and me in to have a conversation. Well, it was about 45 minutes into it, and there was this, this professor who was sitting in the back, and she was on their 1996 Olympic basketball team. And she, and the look on her face said this, you know, in, in Ukraine, they believe to coach women, you have to coach them hard. And you could tell on her face, she didn't mean demanding, she meant demeaning. And I said, well, of course. If you mean by power and anger and fear, well, it works. That's why they do it. But it always does damage and always requires more. It damages relationships and requires more. And then I said, I, what I don't understand is if you want to motivate people, if you, want to, if you want to motivate your athletes, why wouldn't you use the most powerful motivating force in the universe? Why wouldn't you do that? And then I said, what is it? And they, they thought for a minute, and I asked you, what is it? What's the most powerful motivating force in the universe? Love. Love. Love will cause you to do things for people that nothing else will. They did come up with it. And I said, that's right, but here's the deal. Love is patient. Patience takes time. Anger and shame take no time at all, and they work. Love is patient. And one of the, uh, the other uh, professors said this, I think, half joking and half serious. What do you need to do? Get an assistant coach of love? <laughs> I said, no. What you need to do is define it and demonstrate it. And then I said, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It is always seeks the, the good of the others. It always trusts, always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. It doesn't fail. And you should have seen, wow, they said. The way you put that all together, that's what we're thinking. And our other guy said, listen, now I had permission to share. We had earned the right. I said, no, I didn't put those together. I just memorized it. You see, the greatest definition of what love is, and you need to define it, is from the Apostle Paul. The greatest demonstration is from Jesus. Is from Jesus is God himself. You see, it's the clearest revelation of who God is. As Hans Vers van Balsegar said, uh, underneath the, the incredible ugliness of the crucifixion and cross, 
Christ on that cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. You want to know what God is like? That's the clearest demonstration. Because God does not change. And the Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. Then God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God hasn't been like Jesus. There was a time we didn't know it, but we know it now. Let's let him rule and reign in our lives and accept the invitation into the kingdom. But you've got to rethink everything. And this is a beautiful place to be. The gospel is not about going to heaven when you die. It might be rolled in there. But it's about life in the kingdom. And the pathway in, as I said, the invitation is a bloody story. But that's the invitation. His arms are open. You come through that path. What does it look like in your arena for the king of kings to rule and reign? Not just an insurance policy, but a beautiful life in the beautiful kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts on this journey as we announce and enact the beautiful, beautiful kingdom of God. It is a role of beauty to attract, and there is nothing more beautiful than self-sacrificial love. Thank you for demonstrating that and now uh, encouraging us to be a very part of that extension as well. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.